You guys can turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. This morning I get to answer an excellent question that I was asked last week after the sermon by a student. A student came up and asked me a question. And as he was asking this question, I thought, man, I wish everybody in this room would come ask me this question. It's so good. Really important question. Really natural question to ask. So last week, let's just take you back from it. Last week we talked about the grace of God. We talked about how adoption into God's family and and love as a child of God, that comes to you as a free gift. Redemption, adoption, salvation, forgiveness, eternal life, they're all free. All of that stuff comes into your life for free. You don't have to earn them. You don't have to work for them. You don't have to merit any of that from God. So so the student hears all of that and he comes and he asks me this great question. So if we become a child of God by grace alone, if it's just a free gift, then where does obedience fit in? Where does obedience fit? fit in the Christian life? It's such a great question. Because obedience is part of every religion, if you think about it for a moment. Every religion out there calls you to obey. In every religion, whether you're a Muslim or a Jew or a Hindu or a Christian, you are expected to live in a certain way. You're expected to to not do these things and to do these things instead. And the particular list might vary from religion to religion. But in every religion, your God or gods expect certain things of you. You're supposed to obey. You're supposed to live a certain way. That's the same in every religion. But the motivation is not the same. That's what I want to show you this morning. The motivation for obedience in Christianity is radically different than the motivation for obedience in every other religion. Let's, let's think about every other religion out there. Why must you obey? Why do you have to follow the commands of your God or gods? Well, ultimately, in every other religion, it's to earn their acceptance. You must do what they say so that they will accept you and, and approve of you. So if you're Muslim, if, if you practice the religion of Islam, you must practice the five pillars to be accepted by Allah. If you're a Jew, you must go to the synagogue and obey the Torah and the traditions to be acceptable to God. If you're a Hindu, then you have a, a variety of paths. You can choose from all of these different paths the path that will be true in your life. But once you've made that choice, you must stick to the path. You have to do what it says to earn the approval and the favor of the particular God that you've chosen to worship. So in every other religion, obedience to the rules is required to earn the acceptance and approval of your God, but not in Christianity. That's not how our God works. That's not how Christianity works. Why in Christianity do you obey? Well, let let me show you. Ephesians chapter 5. Look at Ephesians chapter 5, just verse 1. Here's how obedience fits in the Christian life. It says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. It's one little sentence. It's quite short. That sentence has two parts. And if you understand the relationship between the two parts of that sentence, then you understand Christianity. Here it is. The, The essence of your faith is found in how part one and part two of that verse relate. I want you to notice that Paul does not say, therefore, be imitators of God so that you may become his beloved children. As if you got to do the first part of the verse to get the second part of the verse. You got to imitate God. You got to obey God. You got to be like God so that you can become his child. Now, that's every other religion. 
That's what other religions say. Perform so that you can be accepted. But that's not Christianity. That's not how Paul puts the verse together. What does Paul say? It's be imitators of God as beloved children. Everything hangs on that short little word. Just two letters. A-S. That little preposition. Everything about your religion, everything about your life, everything about your eternal destiny hangs on that little two-letter word. As beloved children. What Paul is saying with that short little word is that you are already a child of God. Imitate God as beloved children because you are already his child. You don't have to earn your way in. That's what we talked about last week. Adoption's a free gift. You don't work so that God will accept you into his family. Adoption into the family of God comes as a free gift through the work of Jesus. He did everything that's required on the cross, in the grave, when he rose from the dead. He did all the work. And now you receive the benefit of that work. You become a member of God's family as a free gift. That's where Paul goes next. Look at verse two. And walk in love. We'll talk about that in a moment. Just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma, Jesus willingly gave himself up on the cross as a sacrifice, an offering to God to pay for all of our sins so that our sins could be removed, so that we could have forgiveness and eternal life as a completely free gift. That's the good news of the gospel, that God has called us to share with the world, that God's love isn't something that they need to work for. It's not something that they need to earn. It's free. It's a gift that Jesus earned, and all they have to do is say yes. All they have to do is turn to God and say, yes, God, thank you that you have earned life for me. You've earned forgiveness for me. You've earned a place in your family for me by sending your son to die for my sins and rise from the dead. He made it all possible. I say yes to his gift. That's the good news of the gospel. You don't earn your way into the family of God. You are already a child of God if you've trusted in Jesus. It's a free gift. It's grace. Okay, so obedience is not how we become a part of God's family but maybe obedience is how we earn the love of God. Because God has a lot of children, right? It's a lot of us. And so maybe if you obey God's rules better than I obey God's rules, maybe God will like you more than me. Maybe he'll love you more than me. That's how a lot of human families work, right? A lot of parents out there, they lavish their love and their attention and their, their approval, their favor upon the child who is obeying on that particular day of the week. That's how a lot of human families work, and so we wonder, is that how God works? Does does he love you more? Does he like you more when you obey? Well, there's a problem with that view, and it's that one word in verse one, beloved. Beloved is an interesting word in Greek. It is almost exclusively used for the love that a parent has for an only child. All the way through Greek literature, it's always of families that only have one child because the point of the word is it's about that, that completely undistracted, absolute attention and devotion and love that parents direct towards an only child. What Paul wants you to understand is not only are you a child of God, but God loves you so much that in his eyes, it's as if you are his only kid. That's how much he loves you. Yeah, God has a lot of children, but he has infinite love. And so he can love you as if you were his only son or his only daughter, and his love is not stretched thin. He has that kind of unconditional, absolute, infinite love for every one of us. 
And so your obedience can't earn more love for you from God because he already loves you with infinite love that a parent has for an only child. You can't earn more of it as if there's some limited quantity of God's love and you're trying to get more. We're not in competition with one another for the love of God. You are already infinitely loved by God as if you were his only child. And so your obedience to God does not make you part of God's family and it does not earn you more of God's love or attention or favor. So what's the point? What is obedience about in the Christian life? Well, it told us right there in verse one, the first part of verse one. Therefore, as beloved children, be imitators of God. Point of obedience in the Christian life. Obedience is how we become like our dad. That's the point of all the commands in the Bible. All those thou shalt and thou shalt not. It's not giving you a list so that you can feel good about yourself when you keep the list and bad about yourself when you don't. That's not the point of all the commands of the Bible. The point of all of those commands in the Bible is to teach you how to be like your dad. It's to to help you grow to become like your heavenly father so that you can imitate him, imitators, it's interesting in Greek, it's mimetis, which is the word in Greek that we get the English word mimic from. Paul's calling us to, to mimic God, mimic his speech, mimic his actions, mimic his thoughts, become like your heavenly father. That's the goal of the Christian life is to become like your God. And that's the point of all the commands in the Bible is to help you become like your dad. We're called to become like our dad, to mimic God, to imitate him, because that's how children grow up. If, if you're a parent and you have kids, you've seen this. Kids come hardwired for imitation. Actually, when they're really young, imitation is how children learn how to eat, how to crawl, how to walk, and how to talk. All those important things in life, they learn by watching us. They see their parents and they mimic those activities because we're hardwired to mimic. That's how we learn. Now, if you're a parent, chances are you've had some moments where that that hardwired nature of, of mimicry that's in your children has created some problems. For us, it has. Our kids are five. When they were about two, Luke and Gracie were two, I came home and I greeted my wife by kissing her on the lips. And so what did my son and daughter do? They promptly turned towards one another and kissed each other on the lips because they saw us do it. So we had to jump in. No, 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 kiddos. Don't, don't copy that one until you're married and you're not going to be married to each other. So none of that. There's another time this last summer, I was washing my car and I had the hood open. The door, I had everything open because I was working on it. Um, and I had to run inside for about five minutes. And my son was with me. Luke was with me. And he wanted to be like his dad. And so I run inside. And so Luke grabs the bottle of soap. And he walks around the car. And he sprays it into every orifice he can find. So all over my brakes, into my locks, in the car, in the engine bay. Every hole, every crack. And just covered in soap. If you know anything about engines, they don't run well on soap. So... It was not a good day for me, but I can't blame him because he was just doing what kids do. He was trying to be like his dad. He was trying to imitate his dad. That's how God designed us. We grow through imitation. We mimic what our father does. And so we're called to to imitate God so we can become like God because that's what God designed you to be, like him. That's a whole purpose of your existence as a human being. You were designed to be like your heavenly father. Genesis 1, verse 27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. 
You're made in the image of God. What does that mean? Well, really simple way to describe it. You are made to be a mirror. You're made to be a mirror that reflects God's character to the rest of creation. That's what all human beings were designed to be, a a mirror reflecting God's goodness and beauty and glory to the rest of the universe. Unfortunately, that mirror got broken, right? Chapter three of Genesis Adam and Eve sin, they take the apple. And the mirror, it wasn't lost, but it was shattered. The mirror in all of us was broken by their choice to give in to sin, but God hasn't given up on us. He's, he's begun to fix that mirror, and that's what, what salvation is. Salvation is the first step in God fixing the mirror. So the moment that, that you trust in Jesus and you become a child of God, God begins to, to fix that, that shattered mirror in you, but that's just the first step. For the rest of your life, God grows you. He, he fixes that mirror a piece at a time. He's gluing it back together by, by giving you commands, by calling you to obedience. That's the whole purpose of obedience in the Bible. It's, it's fixing that mirror that's inside of you so that you can once again reflect the character and the glory of God to the world. So you're a mirror that's been shattered. God's in the process of, of fixing it, putting it back together. So you can reflect his character to the world. That's a point of obedience. It's helping you to grow to be like your dad. So you can reflect his character to the world. That's why God chose you personally, you by name, before time began. Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 8. For those whom he, that is God, foreknew. Foreknowledge means he knew you personally by name before time began. He also predestined, that means he chose you to become conformed to the image of his son. That he, that is Jesus, would be the firstborn among many brethren. God chose you by name before time began to make you like his son Jesus. That's God's goal for you. A lot of us wonder, what's my purpose in life? What is my life about? What am I supposed to accomplish? Well, you're supposed to become like Jesus. That's your goal in life. That's what your life is about, becoming like your older brother. That's really what Jesus is. Yes, he's God, we are not, and yet in a very real way, he's our older brother, and our goal in life is to grow up to be like our older brother, to look to him, to to imitate him, to mimic him so that we become more like him and more like God our Father. Okay, so that's the point of obedience in the Christian life. Obedience is how you become like your dad. All the commands of the Bible are there to help you grow up to be like your dad. Okay, but where should we begin? There's a whole lot of commands in the Bible. There's a whole lot of things that you see God do and say and think in the Bible, some of which we should mimic, some we shouldn't because they're things that are only appropriate for God to do. There's just so much. So, so let's boil it down. How do we begin to imitate God? Where, where should we start? Well, Paul gives us the, the place to start in the next few verses. He gives us the two most important attributes of God that we're to imitate. Two big things. That if you will mimic these things, if you will follow this example of God by doing these two things, it will grow you to be like your dad. Okay, so the first thing that, that Paul wants us to imitate is our father's love. Look at verse 2. And walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Walk in love. You'll see that that verb walk often in the Bible, particularly the New Testament. Anytime that you see that you should walk in something, walk means habit. 
It's, it's what you do as, as your habit and life. So every interaction you have with someone, everything that you do in the course of the day is characterized by a habit of love. That's how you treat everyone in, in love. But what does that word love mean? It's incredibly misunderstood by our culture. What is this love that Paul's talking about? Well, biblical love, God-like love, it's not an emotion. Hopefully the emotions follow, maybe they will, but it's not based on an emotion. Biblical love is a choice. Love is a choice to put the needs of the person loved above your own. Love is a choice to sacrifice yourself for the good of the one that you love. And so with that definition of love, the the greatest act of love in the history of the human race is the cross. That's where Paul goes. If you want to know what love is, don't look at a romantic movie. Look at the cross. That's love. When Jesus, who, who had no reason, he had to go to the cross. He was not compelled to go there. He was not forced to go there. He willingly chose to die on the cross out of love for you. He put your needs above his comfort. He died so that you could be freed from sin. That's what love looks like. And so Paul challenges us, walk in that love, that that sacrificial love, that costly love that was demonstrated by your older brother. It should be true of you at all times. It's actually a common theme. You'll find all the way through the New Testament. You see it particularly in the book of 1 John chapter 4. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God for God is love. Your father is love. Your dad, his basic nature is love. And so as you grow up to be like your dad, your basic way of life should be love towards everyone, towards everyone, whether they agree with you or not, whether they're loving to you or not, you should treat them with love sacrificially putting their good above your own. That should be the character of our lives. So that's the first thing Paul commands us to imitate. Mimic the, the sacrificial, costly love of God. Second thing that he calls us to imitate is the Father's holiness. Imitate or mimic God's holiness. Look at verses three and four. But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. Holiness, this idea of holiness, when it's used of human beings, so our holiness, it means separation from sin. Your holiness is your separation from the sinful ways of this world. And holiness in that sense refers both to what we do and what we say both behavior and speech, and Paul addresses both of them. We're challenged to be holy in our behavior in verse three. Verse three is about behavior, it's about your actions. Immorality, immorality, that's talking about sexual immorality. It's any, any form of sex outside of marriage. That would include adultery and fornication and homosexual behavior. Impurity, that's a really broad word that, that means anything that defiles you. It could it refer to sexual immorality. It could refer to lying and deception. Anything that defiles you to the world. Greed, greed is the opposite of love. Love gives, greed takes. Basic idea of greed is that you try to take what is not yours or you refuse to share what is yours. And so Paul says our, our character should be completely free of any of those three things. 
Any of this unholy behavior, whether it's sexual immorality or just uncleanliness or whether it's greed, these should not be at all part of our lives. At, at no time should we give in to any of these sinful behaviors. Because holy behavior. And then in verse four, he talks about holy speech. How we use our words in a way that is holy. And he lists off a number of sinful forms of speech. Filthiness, that's, that's any form of, of speech that would include obscenities or, or crass jokes or, or things that embarrass or, or make people feel uncomfortable. Silly talk, that one's a little hard to define. It would appear to be foolish talk. So you're, you're speaking something that is foolish as if it was true. And then the third one, coarse jesting, that one's ridicule or sarcasm. So you're cutting people down to make yourself look better or, or feel better. It's actually really easy to understand these, these three sins in verse four. Just go on to your Facebook feed or go to the comment section under a news article online and you'll see all of them. It's 50% of what's online. It's 50% of what's on TV is these sins of speech that cut people down, that embarrass people, that hurt people, that dishonor God, that lift up sin. All of them are forbidden. They, They shouldn't be any part of your life, whether in public or in private or even anonymously online. No place for any of these in the Christian life. But instead, it's actually interesting, Paul is not content for you just to remain silent. It's not enough to just avoid bad speech. You need to have good speech right there at the end of the verse. What is good speech? It's speech that gives thanks. It's speech that's gracious. It's speech that says thank you to God and and to other people. It's, It's the kind of person that is constantly building others up, talking about how good they are, how kind they are. You're kind with your words. You're gracious with your words. That should be the characteristic of your life. You're continually giving thanks to God and to other people. And so we're challenged not only to mimic God's love, but to mimic his holiness. In every part of our lives, in our speech and in our behavior, we're to be holy like our dad is holy. You actually see that connection. Our holiness, our dad's holiness. All the way through the Bible, it, it shows up really clearly in 1 Peter chapter 1. He talks about it for a while. It's summarized here. As obedient children. So you're children of God already as a free gift. So act like children of God. Do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. If you wanna be like your dad, if you wanna grow up to be like God, then you need to be holy in, in all, notice, in all your behavior, not just at church, not just at school, not just at work, not just in public, but in private, anonymously online, wherever it is, you are holy because God is holy always completely holy. Okay, so when we think about mimicking God, about growing up to be like our dad, the two places we should focus our attention is imitating his love and imitating his holiness. And you gotta have both of them. It's not enough to just have one. You don't get to pick which of those is your favorite. I like this one, so I'm gonna do it, and it doesn't work that way. If you pick one to the exclusion of the other, you don't get the one you picked. You can't have one without the other. You you must have both. To be like God, you must have both God's love and God's holiness in your life. Let me prove that to you. Holiness without love, that just makes you a very unpleasant person to be around. We've all been around people like that who are just totally consumed with their holiness. They define their lives by all the bad things they don't do. 
And they want to make sure that you know that they don't do that stuff. And they look down on anyone who does that stuff. These are the Christians who are always outraged about all the sin that's in our world and in our church. They're just always outraged. So these are the Christians that, that cable news outlets like to call. Because they, they feed on outrage. They call them. Every time a new biblical movie comes out of Hollywood like Noah, these are the Christians who are just outraged about it. They're just angry about it. They're so offended by it. Or a new law is passed that could allow someone to give into some form of sin. They're just outraged about it. They're always outraged about everything sinful they see. What these Christians need to understand is that their dad is not constantly outraged as he looks at the world. When God looks at the world, what does he feel? Well, you got a clue in John three sixteen, For God so loved the world. Not hated, not got angry, not clenched his fist. He loved the world. God loves this world. Even with all its sin and all its evil, he looks down on it and feels compassion and mercy and love. First Timothy chapter two, God desires the salvation of all men. He wants all of these people saved. He doesn't want them destroyed. He doesn't look forward to pouring out wrath on them. Our God is not outraged. He loves the world. And so if you're the kind of believer who's all holiness and no love, you need to understand holiness without love goes bad on you. It goes sour, it spoils, and it makes you a very ungodly and unpleasant person to be around. It's not what God is like. Okay, so so it's not enough to just have holiness and not love. But on the flip side, it's not enough to just have love and not holiness. There's some people who are all love and, and no holiness. And, and they assume that, that, that all of this love means that they, they can't tell people about, about holiness. They can't call people to a higher standard. Let, let me show you what happens to love without holiness. Love without holiness is actually not love at all. It's not love at all. I'll prove it to you. Uh, my son, when he was younger, about uh, not even two years old, maybe 18 months old, Luke developed a fascination for electrical outlets. Because here is a hole in the wall of every room from which power comes out. Now, how can that not just just enchant a little boy? He just desperately wanted to see that power. He wanted to touch it. It sounded like magic to him. And so he constantly was trying to put his finger in the outlet or grab a toy and stick it in the outlet or grab a spoon and stick it in the outlet. So what did I do as his dad? Well, I covered every outlet and I taught my boy not to touch the outlets. And when he disobeyed, I disciplined him. Why did I do that? Because I'm mean? Because I like to discriminate against kids who happen to like electrical outlets? (laughs) No, I did that because that's what love does. Love protects. If I, as a dad, would have said, Luke, I know you really want to touch that. You go right ahead because I love you. None of you would call me a loving father. That's not love. Love protects, and that's what holiness is about. Why are there all those commands in the Bible? It's because your dad loves you, and he knows that sin will hurt you. It's a problem with sin. It looks good. It never works out well. It always ends up hurting you or someone you care about, even if it's a long time later. And God, your father, loves you so much that he doesn't want to allow you to do something that's going to hurt you. And so he calls you to a a holy standard. He calls you to obedience because he wants to protect you from the destruction of sin. So all of those thou shalt nots in the Bible, it is not God being mean. 
It is not God discriminating against people who happen to like that thing. It is God being a good dad. He loves you too much to call something good that will hurt you. Love without holiness is not love. You must have both. Love and holiness because your God is both love and holiness. This balance of love and holiness, I, I think it has, it's what has been tragically missing from this whole debate consuming our nation over gay marriage. It's all in the news. I can't not talk about it this morning. But I'm not going to talk about a particular law or a particular court decision because I'm not a legal expert. I don't have anything authoritative to say about that. What I am going to talk about is how we talk about those issues. How do we, as followers of Jesus Christ, engage with our culture over the contentious debate about gay marriage, this grand debate, the biggest debate of our day and age? Well, you have some Christians who are all holiness and no love. All holiness and no love. They're just outraged about what's going on in our nation. They're so angry about it. And they just want to win. They, they want to defeat our enemies. And what they need to understand is that's not how God sees this situation. God is not outraged about what's happening in our country. None of it surprises him. He wasn't caught off guard. And when he looks down and sees those people pushing those laws, he doesn't feel hatred towards them. He feels love towards them. How do I know? Because he sent his own son to die for those people. And so as we engage in this debate, we need to be the calmest people in the room. That's what Christians should be. We ought to be the calmest people in the room because we know who's in control. And we know that he doesn't need our help. We know that he's got everything figured out and that it's going to be okay. Yeah, are some people going to lose their jobs? Yes. Are you going to be ridiculed? Yes. Are we going to be lumped in with the Ku Klux Klan? Probably so. And you know what? It's going to be okay. Because we have a really big God who has it all figured out. There's so much peace to be found in the belief that God is sovereign. And so there's no room for outrage. There's no room for fear. There's no room for hatred or anger because it's going to be okay. God has this figured out. So it's not enough to just have holiness and no love. But there's other Christians who they're on the opposite side. It's all love and no holiness because they have arrived at this false understanding of love. They assume that to love someone is to approve of everything that person desires. They can't imagine that loving someone would lead you to, to say no or tell them that something they're desiring to do is bad. They don't understand how love works. Again, if I said to my son when he was 18 months old, I know you really want that and, and I love you and so to love you is to give you what you want and so go ahead, Luke, put your finger in the socket. But that, that's not love. That's not what love does. And so if we love someone and we see them engaging in a behavior that we believe is gonna hurt them, then to love them is to tell them. Not to sweep it under the rug, not to pretend that it doesn't exist. If you believe that it's gonna hurt them, you gotta speak up. Now you're not gonna force them to behave the way you want them to. They're adults, they get to make their own decision. And when you tell them about what you believe, you're gonna do it humbly because we could be wrong. Let's just be really clear about that. We all could be wrong about homosexuality because we take this book on faith. We don't have proof of our understanding yet. And so we engage in the discussion in humility. We listen to the other side. We're charitable people. 
And yet when all is said and done, we believe this book and so we must take our stand. Even when it's incredibly unpopular. We take our stand because we love this world. We love people too much to call something good that we believe will hurt them. So in this whole debate that is consuming our country, be the kind of person who holds to both holiness and love. You hold them both. You hold them both because you follow a God who is both love and holiness. So in your life, your goal in life as you try to become like your dad is to become both loving and holy. In fact, God's goal for you is to become so loving and so holy that other people can look at you and learn how to follow God. God wants these words to be true for you. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. In Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I exhort you, be imitators of me. Paul was following God so closely, imitating God's love and holiness so closely that he could tell other people, hey, just watch me and you'll become more like God. Could you say that about yourself? When you look at your life as a follower of Jesus, if a person accepted Jesus and wanted to know what it looked like to follow God, could they look at you? Could they just imitate you and grow up to be like God? Parents, this is a big one for us sobering thing to be a parent because you recognize that your children will learn how to follow God from your example. They will imitate you. You can't keep them from doing that. That's how God designed them. And so the question that we parents should ask ourselves is, if my children grow up to be like me, will they be like God? Okay, that's the ultimate equation for parents. If my child grows up to imitate me, will they be growing up to imitate God? If not, then where is work needed in my life? Where do I need to change so that I can be an example to my children so that they can learn to walk with their heavenly father? So I want each of us to, to think about our lives for a minute, just to look at your life. Are there areas in your life where you are not imitating the absolute unconditional love of God? Maybe it's at home with your parents or your roommates or a spouse or your kids. You get home from work or from class and you're exhausted and you are kind out there all day long, but you get home and you're not real nice. You're selfish, you're just so worn out. What do you need to do this week to change that? Do you need to do the dishes? Do you need to help put the kids to bed? Do you need to watch your words more carefully so that you're speaking kindly to your spouse? your roommates? What do you need to do so that you are more of a loving person like God in the home? Or maybe for you at home, you are loving. It's at work where you have the problem. Because at work, it's a competitive environment. People are not kind to one another. You are not valued. You are not loved at work. It feels like you are constantly at battle with other people who are not nice to you. What can you do this week to show God's sacrificial love to a coworker who doesn't like you very much? What specifically, what exactly are you gonna do this week to show God kind of love to someone at work who does not like you? How will you return kindness for their hatred? How will you turn the other cheek like Jesus did? What will you do so that you can be an example of God's love at work or at home this week? Or maybe for you, it's, it's not love you need to work on, it's holiness. 
You need to work on some area of your life where you are not living holy like, like your father is holy. Maybe it's your speech or particularly your humor. We all struggle with that one. How can you use your humor in a way that honors God? I want you to know it is possible to be funny and holy at the same time. You can be. How do I know? Because God is. The Bible is full of wit and irony because God invented those. God loves a good joke. You can be incredibly funny and holy at the same time, but it is harder than being funny and obscene. Obscenity is just a shortcut to humor. Real easy to be funny and obscene. Really easy to be funny and sarcastic. You can always get a laugh by cutting other people down. Those are shortcuts to humor. Will you choose the high road? Will you be funny and holy at the same time? How do you know if a joke is appropriate? How do you know if some interaction is appropriate? Well, just ask yourself, in the middle of telling this joke, if Jesus were to show up, would I feel embarrassed? Now let's remind ourselves for a moment that actually Jesus has shown up because he's omnipresent. He's everywhere. So every time you tell a joke, he's there, he's listening, he knows. But just imagine that he showed up in the flesh, he's looking at you, is your face turning red? If so, maybe you need to not tell that joke. We always have NSFW, not safe for work. We need to have NSFJ, not safe for Jesus showing up in the middle of this joke. If it's not safe for Jesus looking at you right now, then you need to not tell that joke. You can be holy and funny at the same time, but it means that you are never sarcastic, you're never ridiculing other people, you're never cutting down other people or positions, and you're not using obscenity or crass humor to build yourself up. So watch your humor in person and especially online. Even if it's anonymous, it's not anonymous with God. He knows when you post that thing. So keep it clean. Okay, so honor God with holy speech. Honor God with holy behavior. Is there some behavior in your life that's not living up to God's standard? Maybe, maybe you're holy at church and you're holy in public, you're holy at work, you're holy at school, but when you're alone, you're really struggling. Well, God is holy all the time in every situation. He's always perfectly holy. So what will you do this week to help you to walk in greater holiness? Who are you gonna confess your sin to? Who's gonna hold you accountable? What exactly will you do this week so that you can mimic, imitate God's holiness and be that, that mirror to the world of his love and his holiness? God is calling us to love and holiness, not so that we can earn our way into his family. That's already a free gift. We we already have that through what Jesus did. He's calling us to love and holiness, not so we can earn more of his favor. He already loves you as if you were his only child. God is calling you to love and holiness so you can grow up to be like him. He wants what every parent wants. He wants to look at his children and see them becoming like him. That's the goal for you in life. Grow up to be like your dad. And so this week, let's pray that God would do whatever it takes, even if it's hard things, to grow our love and our holiness so we can be like our dad. Heavenly Father, we praise you and we thank you that you would be willing to be called our father. We are not worthy of that. We could never earn that. We will never pay that back. We praise you, our creator, our almighty king, that you've chosen us to call us your children, and more than that, that you have chosen to love us with such an intense and passionate love that it was as if each of us were your only child. We're just in awe of that. We, we are so in awe of your infinite and unconditional love. 
We thank you that you have made us your children. We pray that now, as your children, having received that as a free gift, we pray that you would help us to grow up to be like you. We pray, Father, that you would do whatever it takes in our lives. We hold our arms wide. We give you permission, not that you need permission, but we we lay ourselves before you and we say, do whatever it takes this week to grow our love and to grow our holiness so that we might be more like you. We pray, Lord, that you would do whatever it takes to fix the mirror in our souls so that we would reflect your glory, your love, and your holiness to this world. Pray, Father, work on us, grow us up in obedience so that we might be like you. We thank you for who you are. We praise you for your son who's made it possible for us to become your children. In his name we pray, amen. God bless you guys this week.